Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes. Today is Friday, February 9th, and we are in Fallen Angels and Demons Part 3. Um, if this is your first time joining us, uh, tonight is, it's technical, okay? There's, there's some math tonight. I'm just going to say it. Uh, you know, and who doesn't love math at church? So there's a little bit of math, and there's also some information, you know, from the last two weeks where if you weren't here, um, some of it might not make sense, might be, you know, might be over your head. Along with that, the Bible explains a few events that are yet future that we're going to talk about. In order to teach this subject, you need a strong background in both the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. And you also need a pretty good background in biblical eschatology. Biblical eschatology is the study of the end times. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach the subject as if you don't know anything about those things. And although this might slow the lesson down a minute, I think it's worth it to understand the whole picture, to give you a real good picture of the entire Bible and how fallen angels and demons play out all the way from Genesis, all the way through uh, the book of Revelation. So it's going to take a little longer to go over these topics, but I really think it'll be worth it. So you're, you're kind of stuck with me there. So here's the background for the book of Daniel. Uh, the, the, the fella Daniel we're talking about is the Daniel from Daniel and the Lion's Den. In 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire surrounds Jerusalem. And what they do is they lay siege to the city and they eventually get in and they take captive a large number of Israelites as slaves. One of these slaves, the most famous Israelite that they take captive and take away to the city of Babylon, is this fellow by the name of Daniel. Daniel was uh, a prophet. They also take away everything that was not nailed down or on fire in Solomon's temple. They take away everything made of gold, everything of value. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon at the time. His dream troubles him, and he calls for the magicians and the soothsayers and the astrologers and the sorcerers to explain to him his dream. They all show up, and they say, well, tell us what the dream is, and we'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar says, nope, you're going to tell me what I dreamed, and then you're going to tell me what the dream means. Well, these guys didn't like that. They're like, nobody can do that. There's not a man on earth that can do that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if you can't do that, then I'm going to kill every wise man in Babylon. This is the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about. It was a big statue. And we're going to get into this statue. It has prophetical meaning. Daniel was one of the wise men in Babylon, and he told his boss that he could do it. Now, although most of the slaves from Israel were kind of, you know, workers in the field, so to speak, Daniel was a special small group of Israeli young men that were taken to the capital city of Babylon in order to be one of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel goes before the king and tells him, there is a God in heaven that can do this thing that you are asking about. 
So Daniel speaks to the king in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth." This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Here is the statue in Daniel's vision. Technically, it's, it's not Daniel's vision. It was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel was told by God what it was. And what we have in this statue is we have the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver. You have the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, and the feet were iron and clay. Continuing on with Daniel chapter 2, in verse 37, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory, and wherever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all, thou art this head of gold." So as you can see, Daniel very clearly tells the king, you are the head of gold in this vision. And the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, is idiomatic of Babylon as an empire. In verse 39, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. So as you can see, these different kingdoms are going to be world empires. Verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay." Now notice that word right there, miry clay. I have no idea what miry clay is. I've never heard anyone that knows for sure, but, there, but it's very important and it stands out in the next couple of verses. Verse 42, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Uh-oh. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So Daniel explains that the statue represents kingdoms throughout Earth's history. We have uh, the golden head is the kingdom of Babylon. 
Then the chest and arms of silver is the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire takes over the Babylonian Empire. Then the belly and thighs of brass is Greece. It's Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And then finally, uh, the iron legs, that's the Roman Empire, which rises up and takes over uh, the whole world as well. All of those were what we would call world empires. They ruled the world at the time. The feet represent some future kingdom that we are waiting for. At the very least, this future kingdom, the miry clay and the iron, is a reemergence of the Roman Empire. Now, I apologize, I don't have time to explain that anymore right now. Okay? You're interested. You want a hint? If I give you this hint, you will not sleep this weekend. You're going to be on YouTube, searching it out. You're going to be, okay? Okay, here's the hint. Ready? The Third Reich. You've all heard of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich? Anyone ever ask themselves, what are the first two Reichs? His was the Third Reich. He called it the Third Reich, right? Yeah, there were two Reichs before that. <laughs> Okay, so the word Reich in German means kingdom or empire. That's it. That's all you get. I'm going to leave it right there. You got to chew on that and hopefully lose some sleep. Babylon was conquered by Persia. They were conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And then the Roman Empire emerged and took over the world. Rome was not conquered by anyone. Rome split up into an eastern and a western leg. And in the 5th century, the western leg of Rome, it disintegrated politically and militarily. The eastern leg of the Roman Empire lasted an additional thousand years. Now what's interesting is that verse 41 describes a fifth kingdom. That fifth kingdom is the feet the kingdom is iron mixed with clay. What's the problem with that analogy? Yeah, you can't mix iron and clay. You can't do it. You can mix copper and zinc and you get brass, but you can't mix iron and clay. Hmm. Every biblical scholar has a guess as to what that is, but none of us know. What we do know is that after that fifth kingdom of iron and clay, there is a sixth kingdom. And the Bible talks about that, and it is when the Lord returns. Back in verse 44 of Daniel 2, it says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, the kingdom Jesus will set up when he returns will last forever. God has never set up a kingdom that will last forever yet. We are given a hint as to the fifth kingdom, the one made of the iron and the clay, in verse 43. And this is what is applicable to our discussion on fallen angels and demons. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay... They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So what is that miry clay? This verse talks about 
procreation between two different groups. Just like in Genesis 6, one of these groups is not human. The word they, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. The group described as they must be something other than men. Otherwise, grammatically, it is not correct. It does not work. You cannot mingle salt and salt. You can mingle salt and pepper. They are going to mingle themselves with the seed of men. The exact same mischief that took place back in Genesis chapter 6 is going to take place again in this kingdom, which we know to be yet future. Remember what Jesus said about the end times in Matthew 24, verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. There is going to be much more in the way of Nephilim created by fallen angels and the daughters of men leading up to the end times. I believe that the Nephilim are already working their way into positions of leadership in many countries to usher in a one world government that will show up shortly before the rapture of the bride of Christ. As far as a timeline goes, all we know about this fifth kingdom is that it will be here before the Lord sets up his sixth kingdom. The Bible explains two events that will cause the world to be flooded with demonic activity. It is the first stage of a specific time period. The event will be the removal of the Holy Spirit at the time of the rapture. Here's the biblical timeline that we used a couple of weeks ago showing the biblical history on earth. And now what we're going to do with this timeline is we are going to focus mostly on the second half. Starting at the Babylonian captivity, those 70 years, leading up to the end of the world. So if you look at the timeline above, we've taken just the second half. And you and I today, here in Grand Junction, Colorado, in 2024, we are in this period called the church age. This church age is an interlude of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, if you don't know what that is, don't worry, we're going to talk about that. In Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24, Daniel learns that the Messiah will show up in Jerusalem at an appointed time. The archangel Gabriel shows up to Daniel right here in the timeline. And he tells Daniel that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah will show up in Jerusalem, and it will be on a very special, very specific day. Daniel is still living in Babylon, while all the Jews are still slaves in the Babylonian Empire. The angel Gabriel tells Daniel that there will be a period of 70 weeks. This turns out to be 70 groups of seven. In this case, the weeks are not weeks of days, they are weeks of years. The word weeks is used as a group of seven. So we have 70 times 70 years, totaling 490 years. 
Gabriel tells Daniel that two events are going to happen and there will be 69 weeks of years between these two events. The first event is that the Israelites living in Babylon are going to be told to go back to Israel and rebuild their city, rebuild Jerusalem. Now that has never happened in the history of the world where a nation went to the slaves of that nation and said, you can all go. But don't just go, go back to your homeland, the one that we occupy. And don't just go back there, rebuild your capital city. And don't just go back there and rebuild the capital city, let us pay for it. That has never happened. Now, I'm not a historian by profession, but I read a lot. And if anyone knows of another time that that's happened, I would love to hear about it. That's the first event. From that day that they are told to go and do that until the Messiah enters Jerusalem and declares himself as king will be 483 years. 69 weeks of seven. Now the Jewish calendar is made up of a 360 day year. They have 12 months of 30 days, little different than ours. 483 years on this calendar totals 173,880 days. Now I know what you're all thinking. Patrick, this is wonderful. What does this mean to me? Remember that number, 173,880, it's important. You can see on the timeline here on March 14th, 445 BC is the date for the decree of Artaxerxes Lana Germanus, the Persian king, Artaxerxes I. This is when he told the Israelites, go and rebuild your city. This is a very special day. It's recorded not only in the Bible, but also in extra biblical history. We know this day. He commissions the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Not the temple, but the city, which is very specific prophetically. Here, on April 6th, 32 AD, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and declares himself as king. He is crucified four days later on Passover. From March 14th, 445 BC, to April 6th, 32 AD, is how many days? Exactly 173,880 days. Jesus came to present himself as king of the Jews. It was predicted to the day, almost 500 years before. And you wonder, Patrick, why do you believe the Bible? Here's why. The Bible does this over and over and over and over and over again. The only book. There is one religious book that does this. It is the Bible. When Jesus showed up to declare himself as king, he was not welcomed warmly in typical fashion. Uh, the Jews had this prophet killed. Sorry, guys. 
you got a bad track record. <laughs> because they killed Jesus, that ends the 70 weeks of Daniel. 69 weeks have passed, and now that timeline is paused. So what about the 70th week? Well, there is an interlude. We call it the church age. Starting at the crucifixion of Christ is the new covenant talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31, I think it is. When Jesus was crucified, 53 days later is Pentecost. And that is when the Holy Spirit makes his big entrance. From that day until today, the church has been eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ, which you can see in the upper right-hand corner in the red box on the timeline there. We call it the rapture. Jesus talks about this. Paul talks about this. It, it's a common theme running through the Bible. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he will take all of his followers home with him. We call this event the rapture. After the rapture is a seven-year period called the 70th week of Daniel. Unfortunately, it is mistakenly called the Great Tribulation far too often. And what you got to understand is that seven-year period is actually broken down into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. The Tribulation only happens in the second half. Appropriately, it is called the 70th week of Daniel. This will happen at the end of the church age. During this seven-year period, all the Christians are gone. Now, this seven-year period is the most documented period in the entire Bible. The book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, details that time period. And as I said, when the rapture happens, the bride of Christ, which is every born-again believer on earth, goes up to heaven with God. So all the Christians are gone. Along with all the Christians, the influence of the Holy Spirit is absent as well. This is discussed by Paul in his second letter to the Thessalonians. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Although this verse explains a very important concept, I apologize, the language used here is not the most clear. Thank you, Apostle Paul. He does that a lot when he writes. Do you, if you read the books of First and Second Peter, do you know that Peter actually complains about the way Paul writes? He complains in his letter that Paul's writings are difficult to understand. The Holy Spirit is what withholdeth the devil. In other words, the Holy Spirit restrains the devil from being able to do whatever he wants. The he in this verse is the devil. He will have his time. In verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until, until he be taken out of the way. 
And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The mystery of iniquity is believed to be the power behind the Antichrist, who is coming. In verse 7, the he is the Holy Spirit. Until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, the devil is limited in what he can do. When the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, which most of us believe will happen at the time of the rapture, when the church is taken, at that point, the Holy Spirit working through the church no longer restrains the forces of evil. The Holy Spirit may be restraining far more than we could ever imagine. It happens in a realm that we do not see. My point is the removal of this good force of God will be noticeable. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So after the rapture, the Antichrist is revealed. I believe after that point, there will be a planet full of unsaved people. All of the Christians are taken away. The power and the influence of the Holy Spirit is paused. And there is going to be a planet full of unsaved people that can be possessed by demons. Because the power and influence of the Holy Spirit is gone, along with all the Christians, I think it's going to be pretty easy to do. The devil needs a bunch more demons in order to possess billions of people, which is why there will be a reemergence of the mischief we find in Genesis 6 with the fallen angels procreating with the seed of men to produce Nephilim, to create more demons, to be able to possess all of those left here on earth because there's a purpose. The devil needs these groups for events yet future. I am not saying everyone on earth will be possessed. What I am saying is that there are two battles talked about in the scripture that have not happened yet. Two wars. The devil will need soldiers in those battles. One of those battles is in Ezekiel 39, which I believe talks about nuclear war. And another one of those battles happens in Revelation chapter 20. I believe the Ezekiel 39 battle will be fought close to the rapture right here, maybe before, maybe, maybe right after, but I do believe it's going to be around that time. And the Revelation 20 battle will be fought after the millennial reign of Christ. And I think both of these battles will be fought by armies made up of predominantly demon-possessed and demon-oppressed individuals. As an individual, there is one way to battle against demonic possession. You must be born again. Now we are going to shift gears, and we are going to get into the time of Christ and demonism during that time. The Bible is filled with so many accounts of demons that we can come to only one conclusion. Man requires deliverance and protection from the spiritual forces of evil. 
protection for the Christian. The method outlined in Scripture for the Christian to protect themselves against the wiles of the devil is outlined most succinctly in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. The Christian must prepare for battle. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 10, the Bible says that you and I get a say in how strong we are in the Lord. We are powerless in much of our lives, but it is up to me if I am going to prepare for this spiritual warfare or not. That's what the Bible says. It's up to us. We are told to do it, which means we have the choice to not do it. Again, in verse 11, we are told to do it. That means it's not going to happen unless we choose to do it. Far too many Christians believe that because they are born-again believers, they are immune from spiritual attacks from the devil and his demons. If there is no spiritual war, then why are we told to prepare for it? Why are we told to be spiritually fit? Listen to me now, Christians. This is the only thing we need to fight against. In verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Flesh and blood is not our enemy. That means our own government is not the problem. I know how many Christians in America love complaining about their government and fighting against them. When I say our own government is not the problem, I know how unpopular of a statement that is. The devil has fooled Christians into thinking that demonstrations and marching and voting will fix our country. It will not. It is the demonic power behind our government that needs to be fought, and we do that in the spiritual realm. Now, I like complaining about our God-hating government as much as everybody does. But it is a waste of time. And the devil has fooled us into thinking that if we can just get the right people in there, have you ever dealt with a government official? Tell me, look me in the eyes and say that your state representative, that your senator or congressman, that's who you're putting your faith in to fix something? I've seen them standing out in the rain watering plants 
for a photo op. It is the spiritual realm. It is the demons in charge of these people that are the problem. What I need to do is I need to put on the armor of God to fight a spiritual battle. That's what the Bible says. To stand against the wiles of the devil, we must put on the armor of God. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verses 14 through 17 list six things. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. When is the last time we audited our life to see if these things are present? Now, most of y'all know me. Some folks out there on the interweb, they might not. I tell everyone, you got to vote. Got to vote. I vote. I never miss a vote. I vote, and then I go to all my elderly neighbors who get the mail-in vote. I take theirs out of their box, vote for them. <laughs> now, that's a joke, and you all know, but it's funny because, yeah. Okay, so I'm in favor of voting. I contribute money financially to individual political candidates. I'm a favor of doing everything I can as an American. I'm just saying it's a waste of time. I'm going to do it every day until I die. What I'm saying is, as a Christian, I can fix this country. As an American, I can't. You could disagree. I'm just going to ask you to show me that in the Bible. Because God has a formula. And what I'm telling you is the devil has convinced us to do more as an American and less as a Christian. Right? Because if we were really serious about saving this country, we would audit our lives and say, am I doing these six things? Am I doing these six things the way God wants me to do them? By the way, you put on this armor every morning. It's a daily occurrence. Now, I've never fought in a war. I was not in the military, but I've read a lot of books, and it seems that the guys who went off to war, they would put their gear on every day. Pastors in America have been telling the people in this country for centuries that we need to read our Bible and share the gospel. We've been telling people to live a separated, godly life free from sin. Who would have thought that it's not just a nice idea? 
It's for the protection of you and your family against the devil and demons. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. God says, pray. Pray always. Pray for other Christians. Please, please, please pray for me. Pray for pastors. I need it. I didn't take a poll, but every pastor I've ever spoken to, they need it. We need prayer more than you can imagine every day. How much time do we put into praying? How often do we fast and pray? Do we keep track of our prayers? Do we have a prayer journal? Do we write them down? And then we get to see when God answers a prayer. And that gets us excited, reminds us that God is real. You want to know the problem with prayer? This is my problem. I don't know if it's your problem. This is my problem with prayer. I don't get to see it happen. After I'm done praying... I prayed while I was here, you know, when we got here and we're setting up. I usually pray a little bit, you know, before the message in, in this office over here. I prayed in my office at home. You know, I, pr- I mean, I, I prayed many times throughout the day. I didn't see my prayer meter filling up, and it goes ding, and I get 10 XP, and I can, you know, I didn't, that's not how it worked. And if you don't have faith, it's easy to be discouraged because you pray and you don't see anything and you don't necessarily feel any better and, 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 and you do it, but, but it's difficult. When I read my Bible, I can see, okay, I read chapter 7 and 8 yesterday and today I read verses or chapters 9 and 10 tomorrow, 11 and 12, and I can move the little ribbon, you know, forward in the Bible and I, I feel accomplished because something happened. The problem with prayer that makes it difficult is that I don't always get to see it move. But when I continue to pray for something for days and then for weeks and months and years, and I see things that people tell me are impossible happen, and then I get to cross it off my prayer list and I write the date and what happened and how God answered the prayer. That's something I get to look back on whenever I want. And I can show people, look what happened here. Look what God did here. I've been praying for years for this one. And God came through. If there is any part of the Christian life that needs to be increased and improved, it is prayer. It's the thing that works. Now, the earthly ministry of Jesus was a time of unusually high demonism. I don't know why. I have my ideas, but, you know, we should discuss those over coffee and a brownie after church. I could tell you what I think, but I don't know. The Lord Jesus cast out demons as one of the functions of his earthly ministry. He also delegated this power to the 12 apostles, to the 70, and to all believers. 
That means you and me. In Mark 3, verses 14 and 15, And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out devils. Mark 3, 14 and 15. The twelve expelled demons. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. The 70 expelled demons. And in Mark 16, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. Those that are born again believers today can expel demons. Now, I do not have time to give you an exhaustive message tonight on spiritual gifts. There is one important point that we need to understand when talking about spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare. There are a variety of gifts, and it is the Holy Spirit who determines who gets a spiritual gift and when they get it. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 12. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, this whole chapter is talking about spiritual gifts, from verse 1 all the way down to what we're reading here in verse 11. I tell people all the time, don't tell me you have the gift of healing and you can heal anyone whenever you want. God uses some of us some of the time to heal people. I believe that 100%. God has used me to heal people. Do you see the difference? The word severally means separately, apart from one another, one at a time and in order. And as we see the Holy Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. It's up to the decision of God to use us and when to use us. The powers are real, but they are not mine. It is the Holy Spirit working through me when it is the will of the Father. I do not get to decide when to heal people. You want to know why? Because I would quit my job. I would just go to hospitals for the rest of my life, every day. Go to every children's ward, healed. You would do the same thing, which is why the power is real, but it is not ours. God uses that power through us. We don't get just get to decide to do it whenever we want. You say, Patrick, no, 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 no. <clears throat> I'm a born-again believer, and I get the power whenever I want. No, you don't. 
There are many parts to this, but even Jesus could not perform miracles and heal whoever he wanted. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. Jesus could not perform miracles and heal whoever he wanted. Mark 6, verses 5 and 6. And he could there do no mighty work. Save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. The Bible doesn't say he didn't. It says he couldn't. Jesus was unable to do a mighty work. Now, he wanted to do a mighty work, and he found out he couldn't do it there. We see that the unbelief of those present was somehow involved. I bring this up because at least one of you is going to want to leave here and charge hell with a squirt gun. And you need to understand a desire to heal people and cast out demons is good. That's good. The result is not left up to you alone. There are many parts to this. We're going to talk about a few of them. Now, the method of Jesus when setting free the demon-possessed was always the same. He spoke they obeyed. All those who were demon-possessed exhibited the same behavior. They all recognized who Jesus was, and they all submitted to his power. Now, sometimes Jesus said, hold thy peace and come out of him. Other times he said, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. What is made clear through the scriptures, is that there are no magic words. There is no special prayer. There's nothing showy, no ritual, no trinkets, no elaborate, superstitious rigmarole. That is all Hollywood nonsense. It is actually so simple that it bothers most Christians. When we view the 12 healing people through the book of Acts, we see the exact same simple and straightforward act of healing and casting out demons. No ritual, no magic words, no special prayer. Let's look at a few examples. In Acts chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. The man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nazareth. It's not a magical phrase that does it. It's the same when a demon is cast out in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer 
A certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Paul said, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Once again, no magic words, no pageantry. There's really only one similarity. The name of Jesus. That was it. To show you how little I have to do with it and how entirely the Holy Spirit has to do with it. Let's look at two more passages. In Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. The way the Bible reads, it seems like Peter's shadow passing over them healed some of them. And if that is difficult for you to accept, that's not even the craziest example. In Acts 19, 11 through 12, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought onto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Here, Paul would wipe the sweat from his brow and someone would pick up the handkerchief and bring it to a sick person and they were healed. In this verse, who wrought special miracles? God. God did. Not Paul. God did. Have you ever wondered why they didn't heal everybody? Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't heal everybody? He didn't. There are lots of people he didn't heal. He healed a lot of people. But he didn't heal everybody. The apostles didn't heal everybody. Nobody heals everybody. Why? Because it comes down to the will of the Father. Have you ever wondered why demons are allowed to oppress people? Why demons are allowed to possess people? Why demons are allowed to cause some to be sick, infirmed, have mental health issues? Have you ever wondered why does God even allow that? The answer isn't easy for everyone to understand, but it is because of the will of the Father. Do you know that if demons didn't oppress people, then none of us would ever get to see someone healed of demon oppression? Let's see what the problem is when the lost attempt to expel a demon. As I said before, I say now again, only the spirit-filled, born-again Christian can do this. 
In Acts 19, verses 13 through 16, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. How do you think that worked out? Yeah, not too well. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The Jews were clearly not born again believers. And they tried to accomplish a demon expulsion by a ritualistic use of the name Jesus, and it did not work. They just saw Paul expel demons in the previous verses. They did exactly what he did, word for word, down to the letter. Didn't work. It's not magic words. It's the Holy Spirit living in us that does it. The demon-possessed man beat them so bad that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, I got to address this. If you didn't know, your pastor has a big mouth. I'm opinionated and I'm outspoken. I also grew up in New Jersey in the 80s and I didn't come to know Jesus until my early 20s. And what that means is I got into a lot of fights. And I won some and I lost some, but I never lost a fight so bad that I left the scene running, beaten, and naked. What even happened here? I don't even know how that works. Now, the last thing that we should see is that parts of the Christian life are necessary in order to be successful casting out demons. This is the important part. A man brings his son to Jesus to heal. He wants Jesus to heal his son. We find this in Matthew 17. This is one of the most detailed accounts that tells us more about casting out demons than any other part of Scripture. The father comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and often to the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Now I want you to notice two very important things here. The first thing we need to notice is that the demon was trying to kill this boy by having this boy kill himself. Some, not all, some suicides are because of demon possession. The second thing we need to notice is that this father brought his son to the disciples previously, and they could do nothing. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Jesus, as he always does, cast out the demon without effort. What happens next makes sense to me. The disciples got Jesus alone, and they said, why couldn't we do that? Verse 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. If you are a Christian, do not read the next verse. You do not need to read any further. That's as far as you need to read. Just leave the story right there. There is no reason to read verse 21. Jesus says, Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Well, that verse seems kind of important. Jesus, you mean to tell me that even if I'm a born-again believer and I'm living a godly separated life, there are some demons that I still won't be able to expel unless I am fasting? Well, that sounds very important. Guess what, folks? That verse has been taken out of almost every English Bible in America. Yes, the Bible version you use matters. You tell me who wants that verse gone. Our church only uses the King James Bible for a reason. There are many perversions that the devil has corrupted, so verses like that cannot be found. I don't even have time to talk about that anymore. Other than to say, get yourself a King James Bible. Now, there are some of the most telling verses in the whole Bible when it comes to demon expulsion. These verses that we just read. Jesus explains that the problem was with us. Now, do you know that there are many things in this world that we are powerless against? It, that, that is important for us to understand. We must accept those things that we have no control over and forget about them. They don't matter. We must focus on what we can control. We can control this right here. I can. You can't. You're too far away. I can control this. And inside this is me. I must ask myself, as a Christian, am I a joke? It's an important question. Far too many Christians never ask themselves that question. America's filled with them. 
Lord, am I a joke as a Christian? If we are, then we need to change that. But the good news, this is completely within our power. We get to make that decision. Am I reading my Bible and studying my Bible? Do I pray? Do I pray always? Do I pray for other Christians? These are the things that God tells me I must do. We read about these things when putting on the whole armor of God. This is not just another pastor telling you to do these things because I don't know what else to preach. There's a reason for this. Being born again is not enough. Someone must live a righteous life to do the will of God and change this country. Do I live a separated Christian life? Am I separated from the world? Or do I look, act, smell, talk just like the world? 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It is so important that we live a separated, godly life. Not just for us, for our spouse, for our children, for our extended family, for our sphere of influence. Do we have a problem with faith or unbelief? Is that our problem? Am I fasting? Do I boldly share the gospel? And more important than any question I could ever ask, am I born again? Do you know if you're born again? When did it happen? Where did it happen? If you had to stand in court on trial, by God, and you had to prove that you had a time when you received the Lord Jesus as your Savior so you could get into heaven, can you prove it? There are people all over this country in churches every Sunday, probably less on a Friday night, and they continually tell themselves, I'm probably good. After salvation, were you baptized? Like the Bible says, by immersion after salvation. If we want to protect ourselves from the spiritual attacks of the devil and his demons, then we need to take our Christianity seriously. If we ever want to be used of God to heal people and cast out demons, then we need to take our Christianity seriously. Now, when Jesus talked in Matthew 17 about this kind, this one type of demon, I don't know what type it was, but this type of demon only goes out by fasting and prayer, which means if you never fast, you will never cast out some demons. Before he got to that point, what did he say? Something like, oh, faithless and perverse generation? There were some without faith. There were some that were not living a godly separated life. They were a perverse group of people. He said, you're not going to be able to do it. So you've got to fix those things. Then after that, 
you need to fast and pray. Otherwise, this, you ain't going to do it. If we ever want to be used of God to heal people and cast out demons, we need to take our Christianity seriously. And I'll say this in closing as we are done. All you have to do is come to me and say, Patrick, I'm a joke of a Christian in this area and this area. And honestly, I just don't even know what I'm doing. Okay, I I need a little bit of help here. Uh, I want to, personally, I want to help you with your walk. That's what I want to do. You don't even have to tell me you're a joke of a Christian. No one's going to really say that. It's okay. (laughs) But that's what I want to do. I want to help you with your walk. That's why I get up in the morning. (laughs) To try to help you be a better Christian. Because I know that will help every single aspect of your life. Folks, that brings us to the end of Fallen Angels and Demons, part three.